Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. While they're getting the slideshow ready, um, let's just briefly... uh, the last two years, I think, Kaya has been in the book of Acts, um, which I know that sounds like a long time, but that's how Living Faith Fellowship churches do. And um, man, it's been so good for me. It, it, honestly, I love God's Word, and uh, I've studied over the years of preaching. I've studied lots of books uh, of the Bible, preached a lot of books of the Bible. This might be the most transformative study I've, I've ever done personally. And I know that Dan is preaching Acts, and you guys have been in there for probably about a year now, right? Is that right? A little over? And um, I, I, from what I've heard from Dan and what I've experienced in the college and young adult ministry in Midtown, um, the book of Acts has really done a lot to, to rattle our cage. I mean, and what I mean by that, a lot of us have been provoked uh, to consider what it really means to have a Christian life and to actually be mission-minded. And, uh, and, and a lot of us have, over the last couple years, have recognized a great um, you know, urgency to share the gospel with the people that we encounter day to day. And, and we've taken our cues and our examples from the apostles of the book of Acts, right? We've looked at the life of guys like Peter, James, uh, Stephen, Um, Paul, Silas, Barnabas, uh, Titus, Timothy. We've been analyzing the lives of these men and we've been recognizing there is just something incredibly unique about the way that they lived. Wasn't there? I mean, it's it's exceptional. And it doesn't, we don't, other than the pages of Acts, we don't see very many examples like that in our actual world. I mean, we can look to one another for examples, but there's something really unique about the boldness and the power of a man like Paul. He is, he's our ensample as the church. But one of the things we can't escape in the narrative uh, of Acts is the fact that these men were a minority people. They were a minority people. What do I mean by that? This is a world where there's very few Christians, right? In the book of Acts, when we're looking at that, those first century believers there were, we, we know, we acknowledge, there's very few Christians alive at that time period, right? Jesus Christ had just risen from the dead. It was a new faith, right? It was a new concept. It was a new idea that was being presented to the world. And there were just very few Christians. Christians were a minority. It was a world filled with people who were hostile to the gospel. The Jews at this time were hunting down Christians and killing them. Uh, The Gentiles were mocking. The Roman government was threatened by the preaching of these men, and and they were being imprisoned and let go and imprisoned again, and no one really knew what to make of it. It was a world that employed social ostracization. Melissa, will you please come up here and say that word for me? Oh, okay. No, you, they were ostracized. I should just say it like that, without the shun part. They were greatly ostracized. (laughs) 
They were excluded. These people were excluded. Um, they, were, they, were, they were pushed out of community life. A Jew that would get, accept Jesus Christ as their Savior would be pushed out of what had, had been common communal life, temple life, market life, um, you know, just friendships. They would be completely rejected. Some of them faced physical violence. We, we read about in Acts the scattering of the believers in Jerusalem to other places. This is a world where Christians were oppressed. And yet, a world where Christianity was thriving and spreading. It's a paradox, right? There's a contradiction there. It's a strange thing that was taking place. And despite the social exclusion and the threat of death, a few exceptional people chose to preach a gospel that they knew the world needed. And that drove them. It only took 12, didn't it? Only took 12 men to turn the whole world upside down. That's, that's crazy, right? These men were a righteous remnant. Men and women who, despite the fact that they were few in number, still lived in absolute power. Growing up... Um, you know, at my grandparents' house, anybody really close to their grandparents, right? Like, um, last night, I, I heard the Sanders talking about their nana and how wonderful and important she is to their lives. I think a lot of people have grandparents that are very close to them. And I don't know if this relates to you at all, but growing up, my grandparents had this couch, okay? They probably purchased it in 1978 or something, and they had it all through the 80s uh, as I was growing That's when I grew up, is the 80s born in 82, and they had this couch all through the 80s, and it was orange, because that was an important color in the, in the 70s, orange and brown, brown was also important, plaid, and tan. This is a couch, yes, yeah, excellent. Um, and so this, cou this couch was even ugly, like at the time, growing up, I just knew that it was ugly, but it was grandma's couch, and grandma sat there, and I sat there with grandma, and she read to me there. And, and it, was just a, it was just a staple. It was this visual staple. It was part of my experience of being with my grandparents. And sometime in the early 90s, my grandparents decided to throw this couch out, right? Uh, I was probably a preteen or something like that around that time. And my brother, who was a very nostalgic person, um, before they threw the couch out, he went and he cut out a, a swath of the cloth to keep, right? And he kept that. He kept it in his drawer, and from time to time, he would get, just get it out, and I would see it laying around or in his bed. I don't know, maybe when he was missing Grandma and Grandpa, he'd get it out, and, and he'd have it with him. And it was just something to keep as a, as a keepsake of, of a memory that he had. And now my grandmother is 97, and my grandfather died about 10 years ago. And I think about that, that remnant, that cloth, that remnant, and a lot of us have things like that. We have like a vestige that we keep. And that, that piece of cloth represented something that was preserved from destruction. That, that couch was going to be taken to the dump. It's, it's long gone. It's been buried under thousands of pounds of trash at the dump somewhere. That couch is long gone, but there was a remnant. There was something that was preserved. There was something that was set aside because it was precious. 
Now, when we use the term remnant, it's a scriptural term. When we use the term remnant, we are, we are using it in a way, or we want to use it in a way that's, very, that's biblical, right? And so first of all, let me define for you what a remnant is, okay? A remnant, it means the last of a dying breed, the, a holdout, a vestige. So here's our definition. A remnant in Scripture is a believer who stands alone in order to stand for God. When we talk about a remnant in Scripture, part of the definition, is this is crucial to understand, it is a believer or believers who are willing to stand alone, excluded, separated, to be the minority in order to stand for God. In other words, they prefer God over men. Right? They, they're willing to go, as Dan said last night, go out into the, into the fray. They're willing to do that. Secondly, a remnant means the escaped. Those believers, that while they might face trial and suffering, they're uniquely protected from God's wrath because of their faith. Because of their faith, God protects them. So definition number two that's really important is a remnant is a believer or believers who trades temporary pain for long-term peace. In other words, they have an eternal perspective. They're willing to endure in the moment, in the face of persecution, in the face of exclusion, in in, in light of being the only one. They're willing to endure that temporary pain and suffering with the knowledge that long-term God offers a peace that transcends any, uh, any momentary or temporal satisfaction. That's what a remnant is. Now listen to me. Today's message marks the beginning of a series that I'm going to be doing in Kaya on remnant people and how to be a righteous remnant. And in this, in this series of messages, I don't know, maybe four or five messages that I plan on doing, we're going to look at Christians that are willing to stand as salt and light in a crooked and perverse generation. And we're going to learn, we're going to learn from them what it means to live even though we might be the minority. Right? Learning to be okay with that. So, let's pray. Can we pray? Let's pray again. We like to pray, don't we? Let's pray again. And then ask the Lord to be with us as we go through what this initial message, there'll be some trudging here, okay? There's some things we have to look at and some proofs that we have to face before we can actually address the topic that we need to address. Are you with me? Okay, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you. You are the only righteous one. And, And... There's nothing good that we can do. There's no way we can act or way we can hold ourselves or or thing that we can perform to to put on righteousness. It's It's not of us. But what Romans teaches us, God, is that you bestow righteousness 
among those that have been propitiated, those that have been saved and delivered out, those you've been merciful to, those of faith, you bestow righteousness upon them. And Lord, I I just want to say I'm in awe of that. And I'm so thankful that you have transformed my life and you have delivered me and set me apart that I might be something peculiar in this world. And I'm not bound by the rat race. And I'm not bound by the system. I'm not bound by materialistic things. I'm not, I'm not bound by ideologies that serve to please my flesh. I'm not a prisoner of Satan, and he is no longer my father. You are my father, and you have made me righteous, and you've called me son. And I am eternally grateful for what you've done, and I thank you. And Lord, I pray that I would honor that righteousness by obeying you and serving you and conforming my life to the image of Jesus Christ that I might live like a righteous one. That I wouldn't just be righteous in name and identity, but I'd be righteous in lifestyle and doing. In word and in deed, I would be righteous. Do that in me, and do that among this great people in this room, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing we need to do is ask ourselves, are we in a remnant age? Okay? You gotta, hey, listen, if you didn't get enough coffee, go get it now. I need you to pay close attention because this first part might be a tad bit heady and I need you to, to stay with me. You understand? Are we living in a remnant age? And I want to be honest with you up front. Some of us might say to ourselves initially, well, of course, I'm with you. You don't even need to prove that to me. Okay, but do you live as though you live? Uh, do you live as though you're in a remnant age, right? Pro- prove it, Right? So let's ask ourselves, are we living in in a remnant age? To believe in the Bible in 2020 probably makes you a remnant. Probably. And many of us can sense that Christ is preparing the world for judgment. Can you sense that? I mean, I think it's kind of in the air. I think all you have to do is look at the news a little bit, right? Scroll through your Instagram feed for a few minutes. And that's about as much discovery as you need to know, probably, that we live in a very dark time period. And it seems to be getting darker. Many of you know I taught high school for a long time. I went into teaching in 2009, okay? I taught for 10 years. And in that 10-year time frame, I saw a transformation that that was mind-boggling to me. Absolutely mind-boggling. And to watch just, you know, there's wisdom in just living. You know, you learn a lot. And the things that I saw transpire over a 10-year period, the way, the, the way that young people changed the way that they thought, which is, it blew my mind. And many of you can sense the fact that we're living in an age that might be referred to as remnant. But we're going to let Ezekiel 14 prove what, out what a remnant age really is. So every turn there, if you haven't already, Ezekiel chapter 14 First and foremost, Ezekiel 14 is a historic account of the prophet Ezekiel warning the nation of Israel out of their idolatry. 
Okay, they've, they've turned to false gods, and he's trying to warn them out of their idolatry, and he's, he's telling them about impending judgment to come. Now, prophetically, this passage, I want to be very clear about this, this passage prophetically is a tribulation account. And we can read this in terms of the future. We can read Ezekiel chapter 14, and we can say to ourselves, oh, this is instruction to the nation of Israel during the great tribulation when the Antichrist is on the throne, and they're being called out from the, the, essentially the great whore of Babylon. They're being called away to be the remnant people that they're supposed to be. And we can read it in that context. Now for us, for the sake of study today, this is an inspirational application and God is going to give us a road map for what it means to be righteous in a wicked world. So Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 1. Let's talk about what, what does it mean to be a remnant. Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up the idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at, at all by them? Okay, so first, first key point. You ready? Here's the key points. As I always say, if you don't get anything, get the key points, write down the verse references. That's all you really need to get. Grab that stuff. Okay, here. A remnant age, let's define it. A remnant age is always defined by a wholesale forfeiture of heart and mind to the enemy. That's what a remnant age is. It's defined by a wholesale or... or a complete removal of an entire generation worldwide away from the worship of God and a giving of the heart and the mind to the enemy, Satan. That's what it is. And what we read here is that the nation of Israel, their, their hearts had been stolen away by false idols. The throne of their heart was occupied by the enemy. The false gods that they had erected had usurped the authority of their very first love. And the enemy took residence of their thoughts and their emotions. They had given over. They had given over. And the other thing that we see here is that they were ruled by sin in their minds. It says that they put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. The phrase literally means the things that caused them to sin are at the forefront of their lives. They've accepted it and placed value in their sin. They're constantly looking upon it. They're obsessed with Netflix. They're obsessed with Instagram. They can't go at any dull moment in their life. They're putting idols before their eyes. They're rehearsing their faces. They're, they're worshiping. They're patterning their lives in such a way that they're obsessing themselves with the, the work of the enemy. And I believe with all my heart that we live in a world that looks like that. We're not only atheistic or agnostic people or people of false religions live this way, but the Christians live this way too. That this is the way that the Christians live. That they take their cues from the world. And they separate nominal, nominal faith and the remnant. There's a sifting. 
There's a sifting that's taking place. And you guys feel it. You know it. You feel it, don't you? You feel the sifting. And if you're ignoring it, I, I, I want you t today, by the time we leave here, that no longer can you see the world the same way and that you sense the sifting, the separating. Satan wants to sift you. He wants to draw you into that nominal faith, that Christian living thing. You know, the good Christian life. And trade this away. This away. This is oppressive. This is oppressive. And it's tough. It's hard to live Christianity that way. Let's live Christianity this way. This way. The one where you can kind of bring in other idols and other things that you love. You can have other priorities and you can bring them along and you can love to do these things. And there's entertainment. There's things of the world God gave. These things to enjoy you know, like fruit of a tree, and, and, and you can just live it, and you can adore it, and it can be part of, of what you do, and, and you, don't, you don't want to ignore that. You can have your faith, and you can enjoy life as well. And yeah, you can be a Christian and watch Netflix, right? And you can watch it, and you can watch it, you know, you know, 30 minutes once a week, or you can watch it like seven or eight hours a day. You know, it's not a big deal. You get to decide, you know, grace, grace, grace. It's all good, and you can live that way, Right? See, this is happening. It's not happening just in the world. It's happening in the hearts and the lives and the minds of Christians. I want to prove briefly, briefly, why we are in a remnant age. Okay? I want to briefly make a case from Scripture that our world looks a lot like the world of Ezekiel chapter 14. Can, can you hang with me for a second? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. First of all, first evidence from Scripture is that we live in a world obsessed with divergent teachings. Let's start there. We live in a world that's obsessed with divergent spectrum of teaching. And you can pick and choose to believe whatever you want to believe. It says, for the time will come. The time will come. This, you guys know that that means prophetically, in the future, there's a time that's coming. Paul knew this when he's writing this letter to Timothy. There's a time that's not yet here. There's a time that's coming, and, and you need to know something about it. When they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto failures. And what he's talking about is a failure to receive sound teaching and lusting after false teachers, many teachers, Man, listen to me. Athens has nothing on Google. You understand? The world of Athens, right? This is like for most of Western history, the city of Athens was the academic center of the world. And it was famous. You could, we, we, read, we read about it in Acts where Paul goes to Athens and he sees these, these people who are obsessed with learning philosophers of every sort, and you just got to pick and choose among the philosophers of the city, and you got to pick and choose what it was that you're going to believe, and you say, I am of so-and-so, and I am of so-and-so, right? That was a Greek way of thinking. Now listen to me. That time period is a joke compared to what we have in Wikipedia alone. We can go to the internet, we can find teachers, we can, we can look in just a short period of time on YouTube we can listen to 30 different teachers teach 30 different things on the same exact topic. The number of divergent views in the world today, we can pick and choose. We can decide what, what it is that we want to believe. You know, once, did anybody have to read The Outsiders in middle school 
Remember, and you read that book, and you read that book, and you think to yourself, okay, there's the Soches, yeah? Remember them, the Soches? They're like like the the kids that, like, with their, they had their collars up, and they wore yacht shoes, like, they were wearing, like, Sperry's, and, uh, right? Yeah, or maybe that's, like, the 80s version of the Soches, right? The kind of the... The rich kids, right? Um, and then you had the greasers, which were like, I guess like, I don't know, like the Fonz, Arthur Fonzarelli, leather jackets, Marlboro cigarettes. You know, these were the, like these are kind of the skeezy kids, you know? Grimy, you know, grimy folks. Street urchins. And then you had, then you had um, the, like the jocks, right? And that seems like a really simple world, doesn't it? Like when you went to school, there was like three kinds of people. And now, today, in 2020, you walk into a high school or onto a, a university campus, you can pick and choose and be a little bit of everything you want to be. I get to pick and choose if I want to be in sports. I can be a jock. I can be an artist. I can do both at the same time. I can dress kind of hip. I can take my cues from the way that this person I see over here dresses, but I can act this way. I can, I can choose to be vegan. There's vegan restaurants everywhere. I can choose, I can choose to, to be a vegetarian. I can choose to be, uh, what is the ones that just eat like fish stuff and pescatarian. And... <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> I can pick, I can pick, I can, I can actually, I have the liberty today, to, I, I can actually one day be one gender and the next day be an entirely other gender. That's the world we live in. Do you understand? It makes Athens look like a joke. We live in a world that, that can only be de- defined by false teachers everywhere. Everywhere. Telling you whatever it is that you want to hear. The world is susceptible to disinformation. We can't even tell what a truth and a lie are anymore. You turn on Fox News or CNN, it's two completely different perspectives. Like, there is, no, there is no no spin zone anymore, right? Like, there's spin everywhere. You, don't, you literally don't know what to believe. You, like, to be honest with you, we're like three or four years away from turning on the TV and seeing our president on the TV talking and not even knowing if it's him. Or like some sort of digital version of him with his voice and with his face and it not actually even be a person. We're just a few years away from that. You know how freakishly crazy that is? That's the world we live in. We don't know what a truth or a lie is anymore. The next evidence would be we live in a, a world that has reinvented morality completely. It's reinvented morality. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This know also, listen, that in the last days, what's Paul saying? He's saying not today, but there's last days that are coming. There's a future day where last days are coming. 
that perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. What, are, what is a parent anymore but a person who just gives me stuff? Right? I mean, freaking crazy the way people treat parents. It ain't leave it to beaver, that's for sure. Without natural affection. They don't even know how to love one another. Truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. I wish I could break that down. I'm telling you, our world is defined by every one of those words. Listen to me. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. You know, Pastor Sam describes this mindset as calling good evil and evil good. That's the world we live in. Our world has put sin before their eyes constantly, leading them further and further away from traditional biblical morality, even as just a, as a, like a social morality. Just like the fact that we live with, you know, there's a church on every corner, and so that culture inundates the community, and even lost people have a sense of morality that is somehow sourced in biblical teaching that's completely gone. We still have churches on every corner. We have more, we got churches coming out our rear. They're everywhere. There's new churches popping up all the time. Doesn't make any difference. We are getting further and further and further and further away from morality. And we've reinvented morality. We flipped it, flipped it on its head. We celebrate the most wicked things. Every single day, I see people on TV tearing their cities down for the name of the good. I see every day parades happening and people celebrating like just wholesale celebration of sexual depravity. And if you are aberrant in the way that you see gender and sexuality, you are a king. You are a queen. That is what's good. And the way we think from this book, Romans chapter 1, is absolutely insane. And we are the wicked ones. You sense that? You feel that? You feel that happening in your world? Evidence number three, we live in a world that is superstitious and seductive. Superstitious and seductive. In describing the last days, Paul continues on in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, and he says that they have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts. He gives a warning here. He gives a warning here. And even in the church, this is going to happen. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot, with a hot iron. 2 Timothy 4, 4, and they, they shall turn away and their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things and do her afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. What am, I ta- what, am I, what am I talking about here? 
we've talked about this a little bit. When we've been looking at like Simon the sorcerer and the damsel, remember these people that were like demon-possessed in Acts? You guys familiar with stories like that? That seems so far away, doesn't it? Like we talk about sorcerers. I don't, I don't know any sorcerers. I don't know anybody with COVID. It must not exist. <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry, that's just a, that's a joke. Oh, I don't know any sorcerers. There must not actually be any. Now listen to me, y'all. We live in a world. I mean, when we got lost, we weren't lost, no. We drove, actually, through Eureka Springs okay, to get back here. Okay, so it was a, we were out there a little bit. We drove through Eureka Springs, and along, along the way in Eureka Springs, okay, Bible Belt, that, we're in the Bible Belt, right? Christians, Christians abound everywhere we go. Tarot card reading. Fortune telling. Atheism and, de- and demonism, Wiccanism abounds in Eureka Springs. Weird. It doesn't seem like that should be happening down here. Right? We know churches. Churches that taught our churches how to be churches. Our our mothers in the faith have literally invited divination into their church practice. The churches are practicing divination. No. Oh, you're so innocent. I want to just pat you on the head. Listen to me. Super seductive superstitions and the worship of demons is alive and well. And many of you know, you've had the conversations. You've had the conversations with friends who've been visited by demons. And they didn't know what to make, make of it. Oh, what do I, what do, I do? I, this thing happened to me last night. People, the, the, um, listen to me. The amai- amount of psychedelics that exist among, like, in, the, in young people communities and high schools and, and on college campuses now, it's crazy. It's just like the 60s all over again. And people are doing these psychedelics and they're opening their minds up to realms that you wouldn't even believe. And when they come back to sobriety, they're saying things that are absolutely insane. They've touched base with the other side and they're ready. They're absolutely ready, and they're primed. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I, to me, this, all of this is it's coming out of my mouth. It sounds absolutely insane, but it doesn't change the fact that it's absolutely true, and it's happening in our world, in our time. We live in a world, by biblical comparison, that could absolutely qualify as a remnant age. So if scripture is pointing to the fact that we are the, the last of the last of the last Christians, can you, can you imagine? If scripture is pointing us that direction, then listen to me. Listen to me. We're going to pivot right here. Listen to me. Then it's crucial that we learn how to be faithful 
despite imminent hostility, hatred, mocking, that many of us will face in our lifetime. In our lifetime. Not, our, not, our, not just our kids. Not just their kids. In our lifetime. Key point number two. A righteous remnant is responsible for burning brighter the colder and darker it gets. I, this is the thing that I have, to con, I have to convince us from God's word of. This is the thing, this is the thing we have to know. That we as the righteous remnant, the ones that hold to the word of God as absolute truth, the ones that are mission-minded, the ones that are evangelizing on the campuses, the ones that are speaking gospel at their workplace, the ones that are going out into the street and they're preaching, and us, the Living Faith Fellowship, we've got to burn bright. We have got, in, in, a, in a dark and cold world, the little flame on our wick has to burn like a torch. If we're going to survive, then we've we got to be radicalized. That sounds like crazy talk. I don't know how else to say it. The people in this room have to be radicalized for Christ. We've got to start thinking different. We've got to start thinking bigger. We have to start going harder. And listen, not in the power of our flesh, but in the power and the passion of our friend, Jesus Christ. We represent him. The more the world tips towards sin, it's all the more imperative for the believers to strive for contradiction. What we need to ask ourselves this morning and throughout this series is will we be the holdouts? Will we be the holdouts or will we compromise? It's very easy to do. Will we be, listen, listen to me, will we be Philadelphian in a Laodicean age? For those of you who aren't familiar with that terminology, when we look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we can see the church ages laid out throughout history. We can look back over time and say, oh my gosh, the churches that Christ was speaking to actually in some way are a template for, for year 100 through the year 2020. And we can just take it and we can overlay it and we can learn a lot of things. But there's this church called the Philadelphian Church. And it actually represents the age in which we just came out of. Prior to industrialization. And in that time frame, Christianity spread like a freaking wildfire. Every believer 
You've heard about this, the Great Awakening and all that, right? Every believer had Christ, heaven, and hell on the tip of their tongue. And people were coming to Christ like just crazy. It was crazy. And then something happened. Something happened. Something changed. Industrialization and Darwinianism and Freudianism came into our world. And science began to rule. And and, and enlightenment had had its perfect way. And modernism came. And and then postmodernism came. And now post-postmodernism is here. And listen to me. We live in a world that is representative of the church called Laodicea. It's completely lukewarm. We're not hot, we're not cold, we're just, we're just living. And, and we're completely, we're, we're freaking butt naked, and we don't even know it. We're depraved, we're poor, and we have no idea. We think we're rich. We think we have everything we need. And, and, yet, and yet our lives are absolute crap. That's the world we live in. Now listen to me. What I'm saying, when I say we need to be Philadelphian... And a Laodicean age means we need to be the holdouts from the Philadelphia age. We need to have the fervency and the zeal and the belief of those believers in that time frame when it seemed so easy back then. In a time in which we will face some of the greatest oppression that Christians may have ever faced since the first, second, and third century. Ezekiel chapter 14. The nation of Israel has turned their hearts and their minds and their eyes away from God. And uh, God does what he does in those times. He's got to deal with it. And so judgment is coming. And I want to just touch on this, okay? Because I want you to hear me here. This is important to know. Judgment is how God chastises his children back to faith. And that's what he wants to do with the nation of Israel here. And the first thing he does is he starts with relational judgment. A relational judgment. Okay? Let's read. Let's start in, uh, start in verse 6. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Repent and turn yourselves from your idols, and turn away your faces from all abominations. For every one of the house of Israel, of the stranger that sojourneth in Israel, which separateth himself from me, and setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth a stumbling block of iniquity before his face, and cometh to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself, and I will set my face against that man, and will, and will make a sign and a proverb and I will cut him off from the midst of my, of my people, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet be deceived, when he has spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand upon him, and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear the punishment of their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of, the, of him that seeketh unto him. And if you go back um, in verse 3, he says, Should I be inquired of at all by them? So listen to me. This is what God is saying. Is he's no longer, should, should I be inquired of them at all? In other words, when they pray to me, will I hear them? No. That's judgment. That's relational judgment from God. So, so when, when the nominal Christians cry out to God and they've 
forsaken faith in God's word, will he hear them? No. No. That's the first line of judgment. The relationship breaks down. And here in in our story from Ezekiel chapter 14, God says, if a prophet should come to me, I will not give him my words. And in fact, I I might allow him, allow him to be deceived by Satan. And I might allow him to sow the seeds of that deception among the nation of Israel. And I might allow them to be just completely backwards. I might let them sear their conscience with a hot iron. I might let them do that. That's relational judgment. And God is doing that even in our world today. We can see it. We can see Laodicea. Are are you guys with me still? The next thing he does is he executes... Well, hold on real quick. I just want to briefly say, what is God's intention with this? Look at verse 10. And they shall bear the punishment of their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of him that seeketh unto him. Verse 11, that the house of Israel may go no more astray from me. Neither be polluted anymore with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people. And I may be their God, saith the Lord God. What's his intention? What's God's intention for having a communication breakdown? Is that they might recognize that they've turned their back on him and turned back towards him. We we can't forget the judgment has always been first and foremost about reviving a relationship with God. That's what he wants. And so that's what judgment is about. You hear me? Now listen, the judgment is being poured out in our world just like it was in Ezekiel chapter 14. Now, Praise God, the worst of the worst of it, we're going to escape as believers, okay? We're going to escape the wrath, the great tribulation. This is not an eschatological class or conference. I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to let you take LFBI. But what I want to say to you is the believers are delivered by the rapture at the beginning of the great tribulation. And just like saints of old, remnants of old, are always delivered from the greatest of the judgments, believers, us, our generation, will be too. You hear me? But there are judgments, and God executes physical judgments in the world. Ezekiel 14, 12 says, The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by transgression grievously, then will I stretch out my hand upon it, and will break the staff of bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. In other words, I, when, when the, the nation sins against me, when people sin against me, when there's a wholesale turning away, a forfeiture of the heart and the mind, and it's given over to the enemy, then I will send famine into the land. And I will, and I will allow the people to be persecuted because the hunger of their bellies. There are wildfires in California right now. There is decimation. There are trade wars that are happening. There are certain foods that are harder to get now than they were before. The price of food, and cat, especially beef, is going up. Have you seen this? Anybody try to buy a steak recently? It's like 25% more expensive than it was before to eat a steak. We're getting the inklings here. What's happening? The wildfires in California have been said that over the next four to five years that that's going to affect agriculture along the West Coast and there's going to be, there's going to be maybe uh, food that we can't get anymore that we could get prior to this. Strange, isn't it? Strange famines, judgments like that. Another judgment that God talks about, verse 15. 
If I cause noisome beasts to pass through the land, and they spoil it so that it be desolate, that no man pass through because of the beasts. The second judgment is the weirdest one to me, is noisome beasts. We don't think about this a whole lot. We don't, we don't think about, you know, a, a horde of elephants trampling the crop this year, you know, and, you know, affecting our lives. Or, but this happens in the world. I don't know if you know this. There are places in the world where that kind of thing does happen, and God judges people and tribes and communities by allowing them to lose everything, and even family members. I mean, this is going to sound really crazy, but there are parts of the world where hippopotamuses hurt communities. There are certain places in, in Africa where hippopotamus actually plague the communities that live near the rivers. It's weird, crazy. Noisome beasts can be a judgment. And I will say this, the word noisome beasts, an inter- interesting thing, is actually a very abstract term. And what it, what it means is living things that persecute other living things or cause havoc among other living things. That's what that means. Man, I'll say this, that as we get closer to the last days, there's some crazy stuff's going to happen, and there are going to be, be beasts that we don't even recognize that are going to cause havoc in the land. There'll be a judgment. There's judgments. Another judgment. Verse 17. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, sword, go through the land so that I cut off man and beast from it. In other words, God says is that one of the judgments that might come upon my people is that they're going to be constantly in war, constantly in strife, constantly battling. Man, the moment we signed up for World War I as a nation, we have been constantly at war. I just want to remind you that World War I, time-wise, correlates perfectly with Laodicea, but we've been constantly at war, constantly at strife, constant deployments, constant wars and rumors of wars. I don't know if that phrase is recognizable to any of you at all. Strife. Strife. And then there's the judgment of pestilence. Or it says, verse 19, Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury upon it in blood to cut off from it man and beast. Pestilence. I'm looking across the room and I see a room full of people wearing masks. The heck? I, I've never seen anything like this in my whole life. I mean, I'm kind of old. I'm not that old. I guess there's been other things, I suppose. But we live in a world that's been completely shut down by a highly contagious flu-like virus. I mean, our world has been shut down. It's a pestilence upon the land. It's freaking crazy. Does anybody else think this is crazy? This is crazy. Thank you for wearing your masks, by the way, we're supposed to. I don't want to get my hand slapped by anybody. But this pestilence, this pestilence, and pestilence is a form of judgment upon God's people in Scripture. Have I worn you guys out yet? Are you tired and like upset and depressed yet? Each of these four types of judgment seem to be constantly working in our world today. Constantly. Sometimes more silent, a low hum in the background. And at other times, more intense, a louder disruption 
on our lives, but judgment, judgment is having its perfect work in our world today. And I hope, listen, that for us, for us, that it would provoke in us a need for a deeper and more meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it's supposed to do. Some of us have turned to fear. Some of us have turned, especially in the, in the riotous time in which we live, with racial division, and some of us have turned to politics and worldly ideologies to deliver us from the pestilence and the famine and the strife that we face. And these things, just, they're just not the answer. Not the answer. It's always intended by God that these things turn us to the face of Christ. That he is our answer. That he is the serpent on the staff that we turn to for healing. Okay, I haven't even made my major point yet. I haven't even gotten there. The question is, the question is, do you recognize, before we can get there, let's, let's, I just need, just to make me feel a little bit better, a little bit nodding of the head. Do you recognize that we live in a remnant age? That we're getting lonelier and lonelier and lonelier as believers in this world? That our, our eyes should be more and more awakened to the idea that this is not our home. This, this, I, I don't claim this. And I don't claim to have answers for this other than Christ and Christ crucified. I don't even. I've got a home. I'm just a passing through. You guys sense that? You guys feel that? Okay. How to be a remnant. You ready? How to be a remnant. Are you ready? Verse 21. For thus saith the Lord God, how much more when I send my four sword judgments unto Jerusalem, the sword and the famine and the noisome beasts and the pestilence to cut off uh, from it man and beast? Yet, behold, therein shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth, both sons and daughters, Behold, they shall come forth unto you, and ye shall see their way and their doings, and ye shall be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem, even concerning all that I have brought upon it. And they shall comfort you when ye see their ways and their doings, and ye shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, saith the Lord. So here's the question, first question, question to consider. Are you personally willing to stand alone? Some of us, man, listen to me. I've seen this. I've done a lot of counseling, a lot of counseling over the last few years. And I'll say this. There's some of you who are so afraid to be alone that you will do anything to get attention and to be with people. So I want to talk about this real practically for a second. This is just practical. But some of you can't be alone in your home by yourself for three hours with the Bible open and in prayer. You just can't do it. You can't do it. You rely on the experience of being with other people for your relationship with God almost completely. 
almost completely. You don't pray outside of the prayer meeting on Tuesdays. You know that. And you can't stand to be alone. What are people doing? You're constantly texting. What are people doing? What are people up to? People going out tonight? What are people doing? What are people doing? The world taught you how to do that, by the way. The world taught you to be addicted to the attention of other people and to experiences. So you constantly have to be fueling some sort of warm, fuzzy feeling. And you put so much on it. Everything's riding on it. So that when it falls apart, you end up completely decimated in mind and spirit. And your heart hurts when when people don't treat you the right way. You You don't even know how to get over it. Because you're obsessed, addicted to being with people all the time. You don't know how to be alone. You've never learned to be satisfied in the quietness of your heart and to be comforted and content and just being, being with God and worshiping him and knowing him. Yeah? But beyond that, if we can't even just be physically alone, then what does it look like on a mass scale when the world has completely turned its back on you and they hate you for what you believe? Will you stay in the fray? Will you be a holdout? Are you willing to be alone, completely alone? Dan mentioned last night in his message, like if everyone disappeared in the room and there was like one person left, right? Like literally, literally, what if you were the only one who believed this book And you didn't have your friends. And you didn't have that small group. And you didn't have Midtown Baptist Temple or Living Faith Lee Summit or or Boston or Tampa. You You didn't have the people to rely on. It was just you. Would you stand? When the world comes pressing up against the door, when the darkness feels heavy, you can feel it. It's tactile. It's pressing up against you. It's cold. It's a bitter world. You step onto your college campus and you know they hate you. Listen to me. This sounds extreme. I I know I'm sounding crazy right now. But listen to me. This is the direction that the world is headed. The word of God tells me it. Will you stand alone? When people around you are falling. Listen, we've watched them fall, haven't we? We've watched friends who profess Christ. They're standing with us. They're in Bible study with us one day. And then the next day, they're nowhere to be found. They found something better. Will you stand alone? Are you willing to be the only one? Are you willing to be the last of the last of the last? Second, does your life declare the truth? Does your life declare the truth? So we saw here in the passage, I meant to read it again, it says, shall be left a remnant. Well, if you're left a remnant, can you be alone? Well, the next part portion of scripture here, verse 22 says, and ye shall see their ways and their doings, and ye shall be comforted. Ye shall be comforted. It says that twice. In the passage, it says it again in 23. 
See, listen to me. In the, in the midst of a world pressing against God's judgment, in a world where the suicide rate is skyrocketing year over year, in a world where the acts of violent crime in our nation be, continue to increase, in the world of, that's in the midst of a, of, of a pandemic, a global pandemic, do you actually stand out? Okay, so you're standing alone, but do you stand out? Do people know what you believe? Like, have you actually allowed yourself to be the crazy one that opens their mouth? One of the things we're going to learn about every one of our examples of a remnant, what we're going to learn is that they, they weren't just in the fray. They were the fray. And they spoke. And, and they spoke about Christ. And they spoke about God. And they spoke about his blessings. And they spoke about his righteousness. They could not be silenced. You're going to need to cut my head off to keep me silent. Does your walk exhibit the peace of knowing Christ? It says here that the ways and the doings of the remnant will bring peace and comfort to other people, and it'll draw other people into belief. It's a comfort. I see your ways. I see your doings. I see you out there as a remnant. I see you have something to believe in. I see that you have a purpose. I see that you have a passion. I see that you have a God that's worth believing in. I can see it. I see it written all over you. It's a comfort to me. And I will join myself to you. Are your actions a comfort to those around you? Is your devotion to the word of God a comfort to other believers and to the lost despite the situations that you face in this world? Are you a beacon of hope? Now, listen. Here's the warning. This is not an easy path to take. Okay, now listen to me. I desperately, I hope I can communicate this. I don't want to say these things as just more like knowledge, intellectual. I don't want to say these things intellectually. I want to speak to your emotions and your sensibilities right now. This is not going to be easy for you. You know that, right? To live this way in a world that hates you, it's not, it's not going to be easy. And just like on a roller coaster ride, I want to make sure, I mean, I, I've taken the chicken exit before. I've done that. I want to make sure you're fully aware that there are churches that are less intense than ours. There are places that you can go and, and you can enjoy your Christian life. And you can make those decisions. There's places you can go. You have your opportunity. You can make your decisions because this, this, this isn't going to be easy. When you sense other people's hostility to your beliefs, it's going to be easier just to step back. Sorry, man. I just, sorry. I won't say anything about it again. It'll be easier. That'll be easier. When your friends and your families exclude you, they put you aside, they think you're weird, they think you're strange. What happened to the old Lorena? 
she was fun. What happened to the, what happened to the Bobby that I grew up with? That guy, we had a blast. Remember Alvaro in high school? That dude was freaking nuts. We used to smoke all the ganj. <laughs> or maybe you came from a nominal church and you showed up here. You showed up with these kinds of people and your Christian family is like, yeah, this is extreme, isn't it? And that gets heavy on your heart. When my, when my parents think that what I believe is weird, that's heavy on my heart. It's easier just to step back from all that Bible-believing stuff. Easier to do that. But just know there will be some who stay the course. Men and women who hold the line. Who stand alone. That take the heat. These will be the righteous remnant. These are the ones that will be remembered at the judgment seat. And they will need to count the cost every single day. And they're going to need they're going to need godly examples. Comforts. Those who show the way. Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 12 says, The word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out my hand upon it and will break the staff of the bread thereof and will send famine upon it and will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. If I cause noisome beasts to pass through the land and they spoil it so that it be desolate, that no man pass through because of the beasts, though these three men were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither sons or daughters, they only shall be delivered, but the land shall be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon the land and say, Sword, go through the land so that I shall cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men were in it, as I live, saith the Lord, they shall deliver neither sons or daughters, but they only shall be delivered themselves. Or if I send a pestilence into the land and pour out my fury upon it in blood to cut off from it man and beast. Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver, deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. What? I mean, why Noah? Why Daniel? Why Job? That's so weird. It's so crazy. Why these three guys? 
Why is it, why is it that God says that men like these men will be the righteous remnant? And their righteousness, it can't, it can't by proximity, make anyone else saved. You understand that? What it's saying here in the passage is, is that the righteousness of a man like Noah can't save or make the person next to him righteous just by proximity, just because they sit in the same pew at church, just because they're in the same Bible study. You understand? Just because you go to Bible study with Daniel doesn't mean that you're righteous. These three men are righteous remnants. Key point three. The story arc of Scripture is how to be a righteous remnant. So learn the way. Do you hear, listen to me, what I'm saying. The story arc of the entire Bible is how to be a righteous remnant. The entire freaking book is about how to live light in a dark and dying world where you're the only one. Seth from Scripture. Lived in a world that was just wholly given over to wickedness. And men turned away from God. And then Seth, this guy Seth, just out of nowhere, starts praying. And he raises a family in a remnant age to follow God. Abram. Abram lived among a pantheon of gods. They worshipped the moon. He lived among an idolatrous people. No one even knew the one true God. They had had no idea who Elohim was. They had no idea. They had completely, their, their culture had completely lost track of Yahweh. And this dude steps out. He takes himself a bride. She's like, let's go, let's do it. And him and Sarah go out into a completely new world. And they're alone. They're alone. They're the only ones. Moses went into an Egypt and faced a Pharaoh, defied him to his face, that he might deliver a people that didn't even want to leave, didn't even know they wanted to leave in the first place. They were grieved. They didn't like their circumstances, but they didn't expect this. This, goes, this dude goes toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, and he's got God in his corner. I mean, think about that. How alone could you feel stepping before the king of Egypt? And you're the... You're, it's a remnant. A remnant. Samuel. There's no open, there was no open prophecy. God had stopped talking to his people again. The friendship broke down. And Samuel was the one 
man who could hear and receive God's word, and he let none of them fall to the ground. It's a righteous, righteous remnant. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told that they were supposed to bow their knee, right, before this image of Nebuchadnezzar. And what they say? Kill us. Do you, even, do you even understand that? You can't go to church anymore because there's a virus. Bow your knee to Nebuchadnezzar. Freaking kill me. Throw us in the furnace. And if we die, we die. And if we live, our God will be present. Do you understand the gravity of that kind of faith? It's not just a story. Jesus Christ. Hangs on a cross. His creation, the whole world, just turn their back on him. Never a man more lonely in that moment. The sky goes, goes pitch black. Even his father can't turn his face, face upon his son. Never a man more alone in that moment. The righteous remnant. Paul, separated from his other missionary friends, goes to Athens, and he gets there. An opportunity to, to chill for a minute after a series of pretty intense missionary trips, right? He gets there, and he looks around, and he says, this city, it's wholly given over to idolatry top to bottom. They've never even heard the name of Jesus. They've never even heard. They've never even heard the words uttered. They do not know my God. And he goes to the synagogue and then he, then he, then he goes into the marketplace and then he goes to the university and he preaches and he's alone. Now, I, th I think that if we took this book seriously and these weren't just stories or just a bunch of head knowledge, that we might actually learn the way to be a remnant people and a wicked and perverse generation. And I hope to God that you're down with that. Because that's who I want to be. And you've got to decide for you.
And if today you're hearing all this and you're saying to yourself, I'm, I'm seeing this and I'm seeing that, that I actually am afraid of being alone. And I don't know if I know how to stand out the way those men and women of Scripture did. I don't know how to do that because I'm afraid. Then as we conclude and as we worship, you need to get with the Lord. And if you want to do that alone, that's totally fine. But you need to confess to God and you need to say, God, I need you and you alone. And if I'm the only one left on earth, I will serve you and worship you with everything I have and I will profess your name in the darkest corners of the world and in my life. Now some of you here don't even know Christ. And you know that your life is just like the nation of Israel. It's given over to idols and all the day your eyes are before wickedness, stumbling blocks of iniquity, just constantly. And you know, you know, you, sen- you know that you are, you sense that you're a sinner. Then you need to call upon Jesus Christ. And you need to lay hold on the one that can heal you. The one that can fix you. The one that can make things right. You understand? You need that. Don't, don't leave this retreat without having acknowledged the fact that Jesus died for you and loved you. He's the one that hung on that cross and he endured that loneliness and, and all the while remembered your name. Knew your name. And this very moment, he had this moment orchestrated for you to hear about the truth of Jesus Christ in this moment right here. He knew it. Seek him. Touch his garment. Know his healing. We're going to pray. Worship team, if you can come up. I'm going to pray for you. And if you, if you need to worship, worship. If you need to go pray, pray. We're going to worship for a little while. And then we'll come back and we've got some things to talk about. But listen to me. Shh, listen to me. This is way, 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 way too important. Way too important to be thinking about anything else but who you're going to be in an age that's turned its back on God. Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you. We need you. You are our glimmer. Your spirit is the spark that ignites the fire in the dark place. And you have put your spirit inside of those that believe. And you've made us and prepared. And the men that we're going to learn about, Noah and Daniel and Job, these men did not even have the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. (laughs) And they lived as righteous men in a wicked and perverse generation. How do they do that? It's you. It's you. It's your grace. It's your love. It's your mercy. And you help us. And God, with your spirit, 
we can, we can do and live and be all things to, to all men that we might win some. We can be a, a, a light that shines in a dark place that goes unhidden by the bushel. We can declare that and we can be that people. We can be your remnant people. We can be righteous in this world. We can, Lord. We just need you. We need to be close to you. We need to be your friends. We need to adore you. We need to pursue relationship with you. We have to know you. We have to. We have to. It is our only hope. Help us, God. And teach us right now. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.